Yes, listeners, we're talking to Sarah and Tyler Sample uh, about their company and products, True Gold Honey. And uh, let's start off, um, Sarah, you and Tyler both are kind of honey royalty. Could I call you that? <laughs> you could. <laughs> <laughs> so you both have long backgrounds in, in honey. Um, let's start with Sarah. Tell us uh, your connection to honey. Uh, well, I'm, a, I'm third generation beekeeping, but my parents were actually the ones that started the beekeeping in our family. It's a, kind of a fun story. My mom and dad uh, started beekeeping in Oregon 50-plus uh, years ago. And then when my grandfather retired from the military, he got involved in beekeeping. And so that kind of they, you know, we, gener- we, we took the beekeeping in multiple directions. Uh, my uncle also worked both with my dad in the bees and with his father, and, and uh, he still does farmer's markets down in Los Angeles. And then my husband um, kind of joined the family and fell in love with beekeeping, and uh, him and I still run about 3,000 hives. And wow. Tyler went away to school and did music and kind of – he can probably be more clear about his choice, but he has ended up back in the beekeeping world and has about 300 hives of his own as well. So uh, give me a number. You have – that number of hives, what, how many bees does that represent? Well, it depends on the time of year. Um, and Tyler is, uh, can help jump into it any time. But a hive can have between like 30,000 and 80,000 bees in a hive, depending on whether they're in you know, the middle of summer and full production or whether they've kind of uh, scaled back and are more in their hibernation mode during the winter time. It's just it's so, so, so amazing. The bees, the bees have seasons like crops do. Yeah, yeah. kind of. Yeah, yeah. Kind they, of. Um, <laughs> they they definitely are uh, sensitive to temperatures. So when it's below about forty-seven degrees, they stay inside. They don't fly. And so they're, you know, they're smart. When the weather starts to cool off in the fall, the queen stops laying as many eggs, and they kind of go into their, 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 what what for them would be hibernation mode. They they don't go out very much. They don't fly very much. They're not making new babies, and they just kind of hunker down for the winter. Yeah, the queen stops. How do they survive? I mean, do they they still have to go get food? Well, that's part of the reason that the queen stops laying as many eggs, and so there's not as many bees to eat their their stores. Um, so, like my mom said, when they when they stop, when it gets cooler and there's not the foliage for them to forage off of, they'll start storing more honey, and they can kind of sense when that weather change is coming. So they'll start storing more, and then the queen will lay less, so they can survive long enough, you know, through the winter. Um, the part that makes the husbandry side, the beekeeping side of it important is um, because of all of the changes and um, the climate changes, weather changes, and, and foliage, you know, less less flowers overall, especially with the drought that we've had in California, um, 
that's where we have to kind of intervene and at times make sure that they have enough food and, and um, medication also because they, they get sick, you know, sick just like, and parasites just like any other animal. Um, but, yeah, normally for them to survive, they'll do that on their own, and then we, we kind of supplement them as needed with extra food or um, things like that. Yeah. Now, what, what, what do bees eat? That's a, that's a good question. Yeah, what do bees eat? <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's, um, I was thinking while Paula was talking, they're kind of like squirrels. You know, the weather changes and the squirrels start putting nuts away. Um, yes. As the weather changes, the bees start packing um, into, the, into their hives. Uh, they start adding, putting away the pollen and the nectar that they've been collecting from the flowers. So um, for a bee, the nectar is kind of like their carbs and the pollen that they gather from flowers is their protein. And so they, as they fly around from flower to flower, and one of the reasons they're such great pollinators and why so many crops rely on us having honeybees, you know, healthy and alive on our, on our planet is because the, bee, the plants need our bees to, one, be collecting pollen, and they're just messy. So they're scattering pollen from flower to flower as they go and collect what they need to bring home to their to their hive, but they yeah. put that away. Now, there's there's some food product that only queens eat. What's it called? Oh, royal jelly. Royal jelly. Royal, so, royal jelly. Now, how how is that different than what what they get off the off the plants? So what they do is is. Um, when they are, when there's a larvae, you know, uh, um, the egg is laid in, in the, the honeycomb in the little hexagon-shaped cell, and then that the bees will caretake that egg to and turn it into a larvae and then a bee. If you want it to become a queen, they will give it royal jelly instead of the, you know, the normal nectar that they would normally feed a, a normal worker bee. And they feed it to them in the larvae stage, so they eat the the royal jelly as that egg is maturing, and they turn into a queen instead of a worker bee. So we actually, one of the things we do in our beekeeping side of our business is we make our own queens. It's called grafting. We do it in the springtime when there's enough pollen and nectar um, that the bees are collecting, and we go and we get a certain age and um, of larvae and put it in a special frame and especially So you really and, create the queens? Yeah, yes. so we, we we give the bees the bees create them but we give them the ideal age of larvae so they can then feed them that royal jelly and make them into a, a queen. You know, I mean I really would like to know more about bees. I mean they have communication um through dances and things like that. I mean like Tell me something about bees. I mean, about like, do they think something that you <laughs> something that you might not know? Um, I think one of the most interesting things is you're talking about how they can dance and communicate. Yeah. Um, even with the little tiny bodies and brains, they actually can orient by the sun. They can tell longitude and latitude. So there's a saying in beekeeping that you can move a hive two feet or two miles. And that's because every morning when they go um, out and they get ready to go, you know, harvest for the day, they can orient where their hive is 
by the sun in the sky in longitude and latitude. And so they right. can fly, and they'll fly two to five miles, depending on, you know, they'd prefer to stay even closer, but they can fly that far to gather food for their family. And then they'll come back to that same spot. And yeah, well, so, the, you know, we had, we had a swarm uh, oh, and, yeah. and landed in, in this, I call it a pretend tree. It was some dwarf tree. <laughs> but anyhow, it was, they liked it, uh, and they landed there. Uh, and I was kind of worried about it, um, a big swarm of bees, you know. And so um, I talked to a, 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 a beekeeper, and, and he said, because um, there, there were the sentinel bees, circling around outside of the, the group of, of, of sleeping bees. And he said, yep. first ray of sunshine, the whole hive will rise up and go away. And, and I watched, and that's exactly what happened. But the problem, the problem was they, they also came back at dusk. They came back. <laughs> they liked it. Well, that just <laughs> meant that the... The guard, the back. sentinel bees hadn't found a better home yet, so they came back until they could find somewhere better. <laughs> they, they came back at the cocktail hour. Do, do, yeah. do bees have any kind of personality? I mean, can you tell one bee from the next? Yeah, so there's different kinds of bees. So the bees you saw, um, all the bees that are out working the flowers, um, worker bees or the sentinel bees, those actually are all the female bees. So honeybees, the female is the main worker bee. Um, and then you have the queen bee, of course. Make, make, the, make, the, make these women do the work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and actually the, they do, you know, there's different jobs for the honeybee as their life progresses, the sentinel bee, um, caretaking, caretaker bees, and those are all the, the female bees. And then you have the queen. Um, and then the what we call drones are the male bees. And male bees actually don't have a stinger. Um, we call them fuzzy butts because they literally have just little hairs on their butts. They can't sting you like uh, you know, the other honeybees. <laughs> what colorful language you have. <laughs> I can hardly wait till I could meet somebody and refer to them as a fuzzy butt. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Yep, yeah. Yeah, well, Tyler, what drew you back to, to bees? Yeah, bee so keeping? I, like my, yeah, my mom kind of touched on it. I went to school for audio engineering, um, was really into music, um, did that uh, in L.A. for a little while, and I always tell people honey was in my blood, right? I couldn't, couldn't get away from it and um, came back to the family business and uh, started working for my dad in the bee side. Um, and then... Kind of got hurt on the B side, couldn't do the physical labor full time, um, and wanted to still do something with the family business because it was important to me. You know, family is very important. And so six years ago, decided, well, seven when we started the process, was we wanted to start a retail honey side. Nobody in our family had really done a retail honey side. Um, and so I wanted to take the amazing honey that our family and our bees make and share it with more people, and uh, that was kind of what drew me back in. I worked in music and then wanted to come back and still be part of family because of how important it was to me. Now, I, I thought that the quality of the honey really depended on the, uh, the pollen collected uh, and the opportunity for collecting the pollen in a given hive. Is that not true? 
Uh, so it's the nectar, um, the pollen is matters. And like when I said earlier, the pollen is the protein and, and all honeys, all of our honeys have all that trace amount of pollen in it because we minimally process it. But what makes the different varieties of honey is the different nectars from the different flowers. So we, we take our bees and, um, bees do orient by the sun. So the reason that you saw your swarm come back in the evening time is they'll all come back. All bees, when it starts to get dark, will come back to wherever they call home by that internal GPS. So we can move our bees at night to different locations, different flowers, um, and kind of throughout throughout California to make eight varieties through different nectars. We don't add or take anything away from our honey. We try to keep it as pure and raw from the hive to the jar as possible. Um, we process all the so products. All you all do is collect it and and package it, put it in jars. You don't yeah. fiddle with the product at all. No, no. We let the bees do all the work, and we just take, you know, move the bees where they can do their work and then are very intentional about taking that honey, you know, the nectar from the, the bees at certain times to make sure that different varieties don't, you know, overlap. And then we extract it in-house. We pour it off. We don't heat it. Um, past 115 degrees to keep all of the health benefits, live antibodies, enzymes, um, all of those things intact. Another thing you might not know about honey, pure raw honey and uh, blue-green algae are the only two things on this planet with live antibodies in it. So what I, you blue use, algae? Yeah, blue-green algae and um, pure raw honey have live antibodies. So they're the only two things with live antibodies. So really? bacteria... Yeah, it can't live in, in pure honey as long as you haven't cooked it or um, severely filtered it, um, which we don't do either of those. So it keeps all of those benefits intact. Well, why is it that they say not to give um, a honey to infants? That's because babies under one year old, their stomach hasn't fully developed all of the stomach acids it needs to digest. And while harmful bacteria can't live in honey, honey is hygroscopic, so it pulls moisture out, so it will, like, you can use it instead of neosporin on a wound because it will kill any bacteria that's in the wound. And um, even many hospitals, when people have infections that are resistant to antibodies yeah. or antibiotics, they can use um, a sterile meta-honey, and that can many times help, you know, help with, with that. But because of all of the good stuff in honey, some, some of those enzymes um, and, back, and the healthy bacteria that's already built into the honey from the bees producing it, babies' tummies just aren't quite ready. There's always a very slim chance of the botulism spores. Um, and after a year old, the, the baby's bellies have the right um, stomach acid to take care of it. So as an adult, there's no problem. But for infants, you just want to be careful. You know, there was, we interviewed somebody from um, Australia that had a certain kind of honey that was especially good at treating wounds. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, Manuka honey. Um, Why is yeah, that? Yeah, we, uh, it's because the nectar from that particular plant is just extremely high in the healing properties. And um, in Australia, they've actually paid to do some really nice and amazing studies that where they were able to prove the benefit of it. Yeah. 
Now, let, let's how how do you go about with this? Now, people growing crops um, contract with you um, to bring your bees to them. How does that happen? Well, um, yeah, yeah so, it does. Go ahead, T. Uh, oh, yeah. So. So we do, we, um, like I talked about earlier, the musical chairs kind of throughout California, we, um, being a fourth generation beekeeper, my mom being third, we have relationships with farmers, you know, throughout the state that allow us to, to put their bees on their property to certain times of the year. We have contracts with um, National Forest, um, I think Los Angeles National Forest, and um, I'm blanking on the other one, but they... Um, they allow us to put our bees there for periods of the year to, to kind of while the flowers are blooming and other farmers, we pollinate avocados down in Ventura County um, near Los Angeles. And those are, we've had contracts with them, some of those growers for 40 years. Um, so we, it's really a. So you, uh, the contract relationship. You take, you, you, they tell you what the crop is and, and that they need some help with this uh, pollinating and and you've put where do you put your bees you take the whole hive and you put it on some vehicle and transport your bees to the, to the place the farm or or whatever it yeah. is and then so we'll, and then we'll, yeah and then what the bees so do yeah, we'll, their we'll, thing Yep, yep. Bees do their thing, and then we'll we kind of you know go and take care of them while they're they're in the orchard or or the field. You know, depending, it's not always for pollination. It might be beneficial for the bees, and we find the landowner and ask him if he you know if he or she's okay if we put bees on their property. And and yeah, we move them at night because bees aren't by the sun. We put them on a flatbed truck and um, on they're on pallets, and we chop them down and move them all around the country so they get to go to a whole bunch of different places and see a whole bunch of different flowers and make the delicious honey that we get to sell. And we just go and make sure that they're, they have enough space to make the honey and they have what they need and, and take care of them um, while they're doing that. Now, now introduce our listeners to, the, to your portfolio of honeys that they can get from you. Yeah, product. Yeah, so, yeah, so we uh, we offer eight varieties um, right now of honey. Um, we have uh, orange blossom, wild buckwheat, um, coastal mountain sage, summer valley flower, and an avocado. Our signature line; those are honeys that we make pretty much every year. Um, most of them are cultivated crops outside of the buckwheat and the um, coastal mountain sage. And then we have a special reserve line, which is our Morro Bay wildflower our California wildflower, and our Pozo wildflower. Um, actually, our Pozo wildflower won a, a good food award. That was, uh, that's one of our... Yeah, and I'm, you've, some... you've, won, you've won a lot of awards. And I was, well, I mean, tell us about the awards, but I also want to know, how, how do they judge, honey? And what, are, what are the criteria for the best of? <laughs> I'll jump in. So the, um, I was going to kind of jump in earlier. Uh, our Orange Blossom just won an International Flavor Award. Our Wild Buckwheat Honey uh, won the first place in the Honey Festival, a uh, California Honey Festival contest. Our, Pozo, our Special Reserve Pozo Wildflower won a Good Food Award. Uh, we have a Discovery Flight, which is a little sampler pack of our five signature varieties. 
Um, and that one uh, has won a third place Buyer's Choice Award. So I think one of the things like Tyler talked about earlier, our intentionality in processing really allows the flavors of the honey to, to um, be, come through and be potent and, and, some, and very close to directly out of the hive. Um, when they're judging, different, different you know, judges are, are always going to look for different things. Um, but for the most part, it's going to be texture. Um, so you're looking at the moisture content of the honey. Uh, they're going to look at color. Um, and then um, taste is, you know, usually weighted heavier. Um, some honeys will crystallize. And so most places won't penalize you for that because that's a normal, natural thing that happens with honey. Some crystallize with very big crystals. Some are more almost fudge consistency. And then some honeys take years and years to crystallize, and that's all really? based on – I know, isn't that cool? It's all based on the ratio of the glucose and fructose in the nectar from the flowers. So uh, a coastal mountain sage honey – which is more of a um, early summer crop in that we make over on forestry and BLM land um, along the coastal mountain range. That honey takes a much longer time to crystallize, whereas an orange blossom or a summer valley flower, you can see crystallize sometimes within four weeks. Yeah, I just wonder how you make sure that the bees only collect the pollen from certain crops. <laughs> well, you can't. You never can really be sure that they're only getting that. But because we've been doing this for so long, like when the oranges are blooming, we're putting the bees right in the orchard. And there's so many flowers and bees like anyone else are going to go for the low-hanging fruit. <laughs> the, the flowers closest to them are where they're going to start. So while they may still hit somebody's backyard garden and, you know, check out those flowers and bring some nectar and pollen home. Primarily, they're just heading right out their door and bringing the nectar back from the flowers directly near them. When we're in the forest, you know, when we're more in the mountains and the foothills, then that's dependent on us as beekeepers to know, and my husband's out there every two weeks. He's pretty much every two weeks going out and looking at the hives, looking at the hills, I mean, he has a drone, so he can fly around and see what, what flowers are blooming. And once we see, oh, the sage is all starting to bloom, then we go put extra supers on the hive. It's kind of like giving them a bigger pantry. And uh -huh. as the sage, the blooms start to diminish on the sage, then we go pull those boxes off and we put new boxes on because now the wild buckwheat is starting to bloom. So um, some of that is just um, him being very intentional and Tyler as well on when we're putting the boxes on, and then also when we're moving bees to different spots. Yeah, I mean, this whole phenomenon of, of people and beekeepers in big cities um, actually putting these hives on rooftops of buildings, um, and what do you think of that? I think it's awesome. I think it's wonderful. I think it helps you know, the people who have their little, uh, you know, balcony gardens and flowers, it helps them do better. Um, and I just think it allows people to feel that connection to nature and to their food. And, you know, I, I feel the more knowledge people have about honeybees, the better. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, 
you know, people being like, oh, they sting. <laughs> and now when we talk about bees, our, um, as a society, we're so much more knowledgeable and people have, you know, really good questions and they, you know, want to know what they can do to help. And so I think it's, it's wonderful. The, the more hives we have, the more we can learn about how to keeping them healthy and uh, the more that, you know, people yeah, understand no, the, their value. They talking about now, um, it, we would be remiss if we didn't bring up this issue of colony collapse disorder. Um, it seems to be a big mystery. And, and um, I, I read uh, somewhere that it really is not, it's not as bad as people um, uh, are, to, are led to believe. I mean, is it really um. bad? It's bad. I will tell you that um, my husband gets the, um, there's a couple beekeeping magazines, uh, as with any industry, there's, there's journals. And um, I think what they're talking about this year is that there's a 43% loss um, nationwide. Oh, and while it, Yeah, so this is, the thing is, good beekeepers who really care about the hives and, and are passionate and doing their best, you know, we're constantly making new hives. Tyler talked earlier about how we make our own queens. We buy queens from queen breeders. Every time Dave goes out and looks at the hives, like maybe we'll have 120 in a spot together or we'll have 60, and he'll have a hive that has died at least. So we're constantly having to help our bees to make new hives to replace the ones that are dying. And I think the word colony collapse is sort of, a catch-all phrase. What we found is there's uh, about five major causes of what's really becoming a hardship for the bees, and some of them are are getting resistant and are able to overcome that, and some aren't. Oh, really? And then the number one challenge is um, the parasites. There's a varroa and a tracheal mite, yeah. which made it That's to the United States in, in 1986, and it's still a challenge. We can manage them, but we've yet to be able to eradicate. And it's just hard to treat a little insect yeah, how with do you, a little insect. How, you can't vaccinate bees, can you? You can't. Um, so our goal, and, and this is part of why we musical chairs, we want to follow the flowers because the more we can provide, more they can bring their own, you know, food is in as close to its natural state as possible, same as us as humans, the better we eat, the healthier we are. Um, and then we're very intentional as we go into fall. We make sure that we don't take all their honey. We always make sure we we leave what we think they're going to need to get through the winter. Yeah, um, well, this vegans won't. I mean, I have a cousin who's a vegan, and she won't eat honey at all. Yeah, and I I respect that. You know, people are going are making choices because they feel that they don't want to harm another creature. I think they just don't have enough knowledge about how hard we as beekeepers work to keep our bees healthy and do what's right for them. Um, I see it as a win-win between the beekeeper and the bees. Without us, many of, you know, if a bee is just like in a hole in a tree and living its life there, with these droughts these last few years where there wasn't enough flowers, that hive would have died. But because we are in a relationship with them, we can move them somewhere else where they're going to have a floral source that 
they can still harvest and um, keep their, you know, keep their hive going. And we always make sure we leave enough honey at the end of the year to get them through the winter. So for me, obviously, I see it as a real win-win. I mean, my mom used to call them her babies when her and my dad were beekeepers. I mean, we as beekeepers take, you know, our bees' health very seriously, and they're like a part of our family. Um, So for me, while I will always respect someone's decision about what they choose to eat or not, um, clearly I lean towards the fact that honey is not something that we're taking away that's hurting the bees or damaging them. (laughs) Well, we're brought to that question. If people are intrigued with your honey, your award-winning honey, how do they lay hands on it? Um, on your website or in specialty stores or how? Both. Um, I think probably our website's the best way to start because um, they can order right there. We'll ship anywhere in the United States. And then we also have a map on the website that lists the stores we're in. And I want to say we're in a little over 100 stores, primarily in California, but also um, I think scattered in 11 other states uh, from the East Coast, um, Colorado, Texas, etc. So the best place to go is truegoldhoney.com, and uh, that'll, that'll get them in the door. Great. Right Do you ever wish they could talk? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to know what they'd say. I really would like to talk to them. I, I used to have a cat that I wish she could talk. <laughs> My bees. husband can tell when he goes into a bee yard just by the hum in the yard, he can tell really? if they're healthy or not. But he's, you know, I can't. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, the, what I read about, it's all, it's a very intuitive kind of a, 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 a interaction in, in, in nature uh, with bees in particular, I, mean, I guess they've been mythologized a lot, haven't they? Do they always sting, by the way? They don't like you? Well, they don't, the honeybees don't really want to sting you if they don't have to because they have a barbed stinger, and so when they sting you, it actually ends they, their life. They, yes. Whereas wasps can keep stinging, stinging time yes. after time again. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. hornets are really bad. <laughs> they are. They Did are. they ever we, interact we, with other the flying around creatures? Um, they'll interact on flowers, and there's no issue. But if anyone shows up to their hive, they won't. They will. They will fight. They will fight okay. to, uh, to the death to protect, protect their home. Their home. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you two, you have more information. Um, again, listeners, and we're talking to Sarah and Tyler Sample. And, and their product is True Gold Honey. And Peter can vouch for the product's quality because he's been eating it every single day for how long now? <laughs> yeah, I spoon I it out of the jar. I don't, I don't, mess, I don't, I don't mess around. <laughs> yeah, we didn't even talk about ways of use, but, um, you know, it's, we're a small company, so if anyone ever has questions, reach out. We're happy to share recipes and uh you know, ways to add additional honey into your into your family's diet, and that's all on your website. Yeah, yes. right. Yes. So remember to check out the website and find out more about TrueGoldHoney.com.
And thank you both enormously. You, the, the, <laughs> such a we could talk forever about this. I'm, I'm fascinated by these, but anyhow. Okay. Well, thank you again. Oh, I, I was just trying to get a word in edgeways. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I, I, I write the little poem about the, about the about the, the honey and the bees. The cat, the pussy cat, and the yeah, oh, that's... the and the pussy cat went to sea in a beautiful pea green boat. They took some money. I, I do remember that. Honey, There's so many poems. Well, honey, honeybees have been around for uh, eight. I mean, there's documented history about honeybees being, um, you know, managed by humans for back like eight thousand years. So it's it's amazing wow. to see how important honey has been in different religions and different cultures over the over the centuries. Right. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's such a pleasure to talk to you both, and we we wish you a continued fine career in the bee business. <laughs> Thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. And now we're talking uh, to somebody we've talked to before, uh, George Ann Brennan. This is not your first go-around, um, especially you don't, it's not even your first go-around with nuts, is it? <laughs> Which, <laughs> anyhow, the, the book is called Pistachio, and um, it's subtitled Savory and Sweet Recipes Inspired by World Cuisines, plural. Um, but, you know, pistachios happen to be like one of my most favorite things in the whole world. And, and I, I appreciate your book enormously. I started reading it, and I realized I've never seen a pistachio tree at all, ever. I mean, and I've been all over this, the place. I've been, and, and, you know, uh, in, in Sicily, and, I've, well, I've been all over the place. But anyhow, uh, how I missed ever seeing a pistachio tree, I'll never know. But... You have such wonderful insight into the whole thing. Um, I didn't know, for example, that when you get these pistachio nests that you can't open, uh, it's because they're not developed. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, I always got so annoyed with them. But my history with pistachios actually go back to when I was like, oh, what, eight years old? And, and my parents used to send me off to a one-month summer camp um, while they went to Bermuda. And to kind of appease me, they would leave me with like a 10-pound box of pistachios. <laughs> so I was immediately popular at camp. <laughs> but I remember, what I remember the most about them was they were always dyed that awful red and, and everybody's fingers were, were dyed red as well. Why did they do that? Well, in, in those years, and I remember remember those red pistachios as well, the majority of the pistachios, all of them really, were coming from uh, uh, mostly Iran and that part of the world. 
and they were, you know, hand harvested and they were often subjected to less than ideal um, post-harvest conditions. And so the, the outer shells would stain and have blotches and it was oh. not attractive. So they were painted red to cover that up. So it was cosmetic. Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, I never knew what they looked like. Um, this is like the first time I ever saw chickpeas growing. I was so astounded. There were these two little chickpeas in a little pod and growing <laughs> together. <laughs> but, but this is now they grow like um, clusters of grapes. Exactly. And the, probably the reason that you've never seen a pistachio tree is um, – in this country, we didn't start growing them here until, oh, well into the 1970s. And even then, they were in very, very specific locations that aren't exactly um, tourist destinations. California's dry Central Valley. Um, right. And even now, we, we don't see them. They're in very specific areas. Yeah, well, um, they... Uh they're, they're, they've taken well to the California climate, though. But they have a, a long history of growing around the world. Tell us where to expect to find them growing. Right. They've been growing, gosh, the history goes back thousands of years to uh, northern Iraq. And, and then, of course, Turkey, Iran, Syria, even parts of, of southern Russia. And the... the um, the trees thrive in conditions where they have long, fairly hot, dry summers, but um, cool winters. And then they made, pistachios made their way to Western Europe, um, you know, through the old, through the old trade routes. Um, mm-hmm. So they eventually made their way and then became established in, well, as you mentioned, Sicily and other parts of, of Italy and the um, Eastern Mediterranean, where again they found those those amenable climates, and then the Crusaders uh, came and popularized them even more. Oh yeah. And then the Italians, you know, gosh, they've made a, you know, become notable for their for their pistachios, a wonderful pistachio paste. And if you think about mortadella, it always has pistachios in it. Um, right. The pistachio ice creams and. And well, my family was Sicilian, so we always had ah. the cannoli shells. We always had the, uh, yeah. The, oh, I I probably would disagree with you on that one thing. I have those tubes, those aluminum tubes or whatever they are, and I've uh-huh. never had any luck making cannoli. <laughs> well, I don't think they're know, easy. <laughs> I don't I don't think they're easy, and I have the aluminum tubes also, and. Okay. Uh, I had two friends helping me, and I think that's the key. It, it is not a job for one person. Okay. So, you know, a husband, a couple of friends, and the, uh, the same with the baklava, not a job for one person. But it's fun to do with friends and way more doable. Yes. And the, the way they're grown varies according to the climate and the type of 
of pistachio. Um, but one of their big advantages, as I understand it and have understood it, is that they do not require a whole lot of, of, of water. Like uh, we have the terrible situation with the almonds in California. Yes, that is definitely true. They do not require nearly the amount of water that, that almonds do. And that makes it a plus and even more attractive for California growers. Now, I just turned a, a page here, and there is this a photograph. Um, what's the subject of it here? The uh, pistachio is in the kitchen, and, and you have Latorum gel, which is the pistachio oil I use. <laughs> I love that oil. Oh, my gosh. Just you open you don't you open that can and just smell the oil. It's just the essence of pistachio. It's the very best. Well, I I love it. I like the fact that it's like neon green. <laughs> I know, I know. It is pretty green, but nice. Yeah. Well, you know, you you encourage experimenting with with pistachios. I've used pistachios as pesto for ages, but. I do pistachio uh, cilantro pesto. Ah, uh-huh. It's very good. And then mm-hmm. I also use the pistachio oil in with my um, uh, guacamole. Uh, Ooh. And, yeah, and, 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 and I use uh, actual nuts in with the, with the guacamole, too, avocado and the Great idea. It's Love really that. It's really good. <laughs> So I mean, I, I, you may have noticed how I've dwelled on all these tastes and flavors in your book. I love pistachios. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're you know they are so versatile, and I, they're dangerous. Yeah, that's the if thing. I, I mean, you can use them for everything. Oh, I can just eat them, and, and it's obsessive. They're so delicious, and they're also I think you know they're they're not a hard nut. They're just you know, you they're they're not they're so easy to eat. You know, unless you get one of those underdeveloped ones, then it's impossible. You could take a hammer yeah, to so it. You put those aside. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So, but uh, you explained about different growing conditions and different varieties and so forth. But the, the different methods of harvesting them really depends on the geographical area as well, right? Yes, that is is my understanding. And, you know, and if you think of all the different parts of the world where they're grown, uh, you know, some are more industrialized than others. And in an industrialized area like um, California, you know, there's all kinds of of heavy equipment and machinery that's used, whereas in, say, um, you know, Syria or Afghanistan, you know, they're still grown on small farms where individual families, extended families, may pick and dry and then bring them to another to a, a facility where they're all combined. And the book has some really quite wonderful photos, I think, of these, oh, these different this, conditions. The photos are spectacular in this book, I must say. Um, yeah. But the, the, the thing is, how much did you invent uh, in, in the recipes. How much of these recipes are your invention? Um, 
to some extent, they are, how do I want to say, not exactly an entire invention, but I've taken some uh, traditional recipes that might take, you know, five or six women several hours to make in a in a Middle Eastern kitchen, and I've tried to, you know, bring it down to make it easier for home cooks to do, but still maintain the flavors that are the the integrity of the dish. Right. I mean, the the the, the versatility. I'll come back to that. I mean, you use them in in savory. You use them in sweets. Um, you use them in snacks. They're very high in nutrition. We should point that out. Yes. Um, I mean, you don't think you think of nuts as being heavy on fat, and they're probably among the lowest, right? Among the lowest, and also a lot of the recipes here use the the nuts as an enhancement. Uh, for example, one of the recipes I created: nectarine and burrata salad, pistachio vinaigrette. The pistachios are there as a garnish and as part of the vinaigrette, but you're not eating a cup of pistachios. You're eating maybe per serving one tablespoon at the most, but you still get the flavor and the pistachio oil that enhances that even more. I'm having a little bit of trouble with your sound. Yeah, you're fading a little bit. That's fading a little bit, sound wise. I haven't. I've just been sitting here doing, not moving. So this is. <laughs> I understand. No, I, I just wanted you to be aware of that. Perhaps, perhaps you okay. Frank, if you could speak a little louder, that might, that might All right. help us. Well, did you learn something really new about pistachios? I mean, I never knew that you had to have. Uh, male and female trees, but um, you don't have to uh, uh, pollinate them in the wind, is that right? Right. And and the other thing, it must be difficult if you only have a, a, a good fruiting one year and then they skip a year and then you go back to it. How do they handle that? Yes, that's interesting. I believe that they're planted at different you know, in a different there's always one thing that bearing that is bearing and that's similar to olives. Olives have a bearing year followed by a lesser bearing. So I think that's something that farmers have figured out over the centuries. Huh. Um the um, the market for this, I mean it's pretty you universal now. I mean, it used to be a limited market, but now it's kind of a global flavor preference, right? Uh, it seems to be, yes. It's definitely um, emerged in the Western world beyond the traditional areas of pistachio uh, and on into, you know, plant pistachio trees over if there is low demand. Um, what did you learn anything really astoundingly new about pistachios in the course of researching the book? Well, one of the things that I found astonishing was 
did no shastati milk. The Almond milk, of course, which is fairly familiar. Oh, right, right, right. It occurred to me there'd be pistachio now. Uh-huh. And is there? Apparently. Hello? Did I lose you? Yes. But you're yeah, back. are you back? I'm, I'm Here. Goosing, I'm, goose, I'm goosing my volume on the, on the phone set that I'm using just to, to give us a better chance of getting this all, all done properly. So, sweetheart, keep, keep going. Okay. Um, the new recipes in here, um, what do you think is going to be the biggest hit? I mean, there's so many of them. I would like to just start the front and cook all the way through the back. Now, what is the pistachio line? No, we're, we're losing you. Um, I, I don't know why. You seem to be breaking up. Are you on a cell phone? Yes, it's a cell phone. Yeah, it's kind of breaking up. Um, well, I, I can go through all these. And um, the pistachio nut... Pistachio date nut bread stands out to me. Um, That's incredible. Um, But I also, I never even, for some reason, never knew that there were dried olives. I've never had a dried olive. Yeah. The, um, you think of the uh, shriveled black olives? Yes. Sometimes packed in oil. Yes. And those are just naturally dried with salt. Okay. And I, I've never seen them on the market. Where do you buy them? Oh, gosh. I buy them all the time in southern France. They're my favorite. Uh-huh. Well, um, what are you... Here's another one. This is pistachio fennel crackers. I could eat, and the photography is so good, I could eat one right off the page. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Um, any any others that you'd like to run through, just talking about? The... Well, I think that, I think one of the things that's going to really appeal to people are how simple so many of the snacks and side dishes and even desserts are. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, pistachios could hold their own with all of this stuff. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Now, you do a lot with salads. I mean, that's kind of a natural, too. A salads, after a while, you really need to perk them up, don't you? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, really, we need to always be thinking about salads and I did write a book of William Sonoma, 365 salads, one every day. I'm a bit of an expert. <laughs> um, some of these, though, are, are really kind of stretched out that I would never even think of. Uh, oh. I mean, I've not even come close to, to thinking about but one of the ones that struck me as really valuable 
was your potato salad, which I find pretty boring. But you make it with pistachio, celery, and preserved lemon. Preserved lemon is another mm. one of those things that I adore. And and, and I, I always have that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, I adore preserved lemons. Um, but this is a very unique salad. Did you dream this one up? I did dream this one up. Boy. So tell tell me what what you were aiming for here. Well, potato I'm salad. A little, a little like you, you know, potato salads can be very one-dimensional. Um, uh, so I was seeing, you know, of Southern Italy and lemon and pistachios and that zing of flavors, and thought that they would bounce well off uh, and be carried by the potatoes along with the crunch celery. It's mm-hmm. underrated. Well, here's another one I bookmarked that I'm absolutely going to make. Uh, it been along the lines of, of dishes and veggies that need a lot of help. I put in their cauliflower. <laughs> I just, I just got the most enormous cauliflower in my. I have a vegetable subscription thing, and it would be you know there are two of us, and, and this cauliflower, I made. I made it for dinner two nights, and I froze two other portions for two nights each. So that's two, four, six portions wow. of cauliflower. And I mean, I have the stuff in the freezer, but I need to do, I need to do something before we attack more cauliflower. And here's <laughs> tell us about your Sicilian roasted cauliflower. It sounds well, again those good. Those flavors of Sicily speak to me. And roasted cauliflower is actually so easy to do. Um, and then my version is a riff on the more common French one of, of, of steamed cauliflower with an anchovy vinaigrette served warm or temperature. And I had to give it a little more excitement. So I did the pistachios and then the capers and the the lemon and it's along with the anchovies and it's really delicious. Well, you you're gonna find that on my table pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> I have to backtrack a little bit on the frozen cauliflower, but <laughs> the flavors are perfect. Um. Uh, what what do you think um, is going to happen with, I mean, do you think that this book is going to spark a new renaissance of pistachios or what? Oh, I, I don't know about sparking a renaissance of pistachios. I rather think it's people are already interested in buying pistachios, and I think, hope, that this book will help them to explore all the different uses of pistachios so that we can eat more of them. Right. Um, as I tell you, I've been eating them since I was a child <laughs> in great quantities. Um, yeah, the, You move around the globe with your recipes, which I thought we should mention as well. I mean, you don't stick to any one country. You go all over. 
uh, with different different styles of dishes. Um, I'm looking well, at I, this one. This one I thought was really wonderful was your your roast quail with fig and pistachio stuffing. It's so good. Uh, <laughs> it's you know there's something so many of these flavors come together from the same parts of the world you know where the pistachios are grown whether it's the central valley of california or turkey or italy or iran they have figs they have the small birds quail and it's you know they just speak to me and this is a dish that could be served up in, in really almost any place that those those things appear. Right. But and then, of course, the desserts, again, I mean, there has to be a certain sin, a sin involved with how these are presented because they're so enticing and seductive. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm looking true. at this pistachio nut tart. <laughs> Isn't starter. that gorgeous? Oh, and with, God. Uh, and that's, you know, one tart will easily, um, you know, serve ten people. Um, uh-huh. Even though it says serves eight. Once you, you can easily make that to serve ten people because the slice is so ri- it's so rich. And it's well, yeah, it was like so the baklava. That was, that's talking about rich. Oh boy, talk about rich. Mm, yummy. It's <laughs> so good. Yeah, the first time I ever made that, I was a friend of mine's recipe. I was so astounded at the amount of butter that went into it. I know. Oh my gosh. I use so much butter on some of these recipes. But, you know, if you're going to be, you know, traditional with some, then that's what you need to do. You can't imagine baklava with just, you know, dry. It wouldn't work. I wonder who's going to make pistachio ice cream sandwiches. They look absolutely divine. You know, that was one of the first... I was making those before I was even asked to write this book. Uh, really? I have an ice cream, an ice cream machine, and uh, throughout the year, I make different ice creams depending upon what's in season. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I loved pistachio ice cream, so I was determined to make it and not use green food coloring. Oh, oh really? <laughs> no. Yeah, I can see that. Um, now, how do how do you work? Um, I mean, do you like? Are you now? Of course, your attention is on this book tour that you're going to have to do. Um, but, like, do you already start thinking of your next book? Um, well, you know, I would love to do a with this on walnuts. The, the, the publisher and the, the co-author here, Barbara Bryant, uh, have a, an almond book and pecan, now pistachio, and I think walnut would be the obvious next step. So we'll see. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to bite my tongue because I'm not going to say anything about your being nuts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> well, I, I wish you much success with this book. 
and uh, you, you, there's one absolutely grateful person you're talking to right now. Uh, I'm grateful that, that you produced this book and that I have these recipes to, to work on and uh, get my fix of my pistachios. And, yeah, oh, and, thank you, Anne. Yeah, I'm glad they're not red anymore, though, because that was really ugly. <laughs> Very messy. Yeah. Well, anyhow, Georgian, um, say congrats also to um, your co-author, Barbara Bryant. And um, again, listeners, you really want to, if you want to expand your world of flavors, this is the book for you. Again, it's uh, Georgian Brennan, and the book is Pistachio, Savory and Sweet Recipes Inspired by World Cuisines. And it has just about everything you ever want, and it's going to have a prized position in your kitchen. And Georgine, thank you again for taking the time to talk to us. Always a pleasure. Great. <laughs>